Turn your Bibles to the Pauline epistle to the church at Ephesus, that is Ephesians chapter 4, for a sermon entitled, Gatekeeper. Ephesians chapter 4, Gatekeeper. Words can be very hurtful, or words can be very healing. When our middle daughter, Jordan, was six years old, she was developing a habit to which all of us are prone. She was saying exactly what was on her mind, regardless of whether it was helpful or hurtful, whether it was building others up or tearing others down, regardless of whether it was critical or encouraging. If she thought it, she said it. After one of her verbal spiels, I sat her down and had a little talk. Jordan and I explained carefully to her six-year-old mind. Words start up here in your mind. They travel down a road all the way down to the gate. And you, you are the gatekeeper. And some words come down that path. They're going to tear others down. They're going to be hurtful then you must refuse to open the gate. You must not let those words out because they hurt. She was listening with big eyes, and I wasn't sure whether any of my hold-your-tongue lesson was being absorbed or not. And then a few days later, she came running to me and said, Daddy, Daddy, my mind had something bad to say, but I closed my gate. Lesson learned. I think we all struggle with Jordan's gate. She's not the only one. At least Paul thought we all need to understand the concept of being a, a gatekeeper. I need a gate to stop my verbal pollution too. And, and I'm willing to bet this morning, well, I know some of you do too. <laughs> Was it Calvin Coolidge who said, I've never gotten in trouble for anything I didn't say. I've never gotten in trouble for anything that I didn't say. It's absolutely amazing that in any given day, we as mature believers in Christ continue the verbal spillage that is hurtful to others at a rate that ought to cause us to apologize, most of us, me included, a couple of times a day. Being careless rather than being careful keepers of the gate. When you think about Christian speech patterns, you think about the book of James, and it's rich, has something to say about the tongue in every single chapter. But the reality is, though we don't often note it, the Apostle Paul likewise has much to say about measuring our words. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Look at that. Are you speaking words that give grace? Are your words words of grace? We move up to verses 17 through 19 where he described to them what it was like in their pagan life 
their Gentile life before they confess Christ, their life of idolatry. Look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk and futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. This is the part of the Ephesian letter that we would call the ethical exhortation. The theology has come first, and now he's saying, because you believe these things, this is the way that we ought to walk. It begins in verse 17 by describing their pagan life before they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, before they had pronounced Jesus Christ as Lord. In their old days, their darkest days, notice verse 17, the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they were darkened in their thinking. Verse 18, they were separated from the life of God. Then he includes in verse 19, they had lives of licentiousness and purity and immorality and greediness. But now... He's about to compare to putting it on and off garments. That was your old garment. But now that you've taken off the old pagan garment and put on the garment of the Christ, you will walk differently now that you say Jesus is Lord. Look what he says. Verse 20, but you do not learn Christ in this way. Look at verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. He compares our old pagan life, our life before we follow Christ, before we were indwelled by the Holy Spirit as a, a garment, an old garment, we've taken it off. And now, verse uh, 24, we have put on the new self. We have put on a new garment, the Christ garment. It's the likeness of God being created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, verse 25, speak the truth. You see that? Each one of you with his neighbor for your members of one another. Now that you're no longer a pagan and you have removed the old garment of idolatry, the old garment of living as members of the flesh, now that you've put on the new garment, living in the spirit and the garment of the Christ, now, he says, verse 25, you are to speak the truth. So what do you want to say now, Paul, now that you've told us how not to live, now that we've put on the new garment, how should we live with the new garment? And well, he gives us several things and no one sermon can cover them all, at least not well. So we're going to focus on being gatekeepers this morning because he says in verse 25, because you've put on the new self, therefore lay aside falsehood and speak the truth. Isn't it interesting, of all the measures that Paul could have selected to show how much we walk in the Spirit or how much we're like the Christ, the one measure he chose is our tongues, our lips, our gates. At least according to Paul, when we really measure whether or not we've put on the new garment in such a way as to empower the Spirit within us, the measure is our language. Of all the things he could have chosen, he says, it's your speech. 
that reveals who you are and what garment you're wearing. First of all, Paul says, as keepers of the gate, we must speak the truth, verse 25. As keepers of the gate, we are to be truth speakers. Putting off the old person, casting off an old coat, put off deceit, put off falsehood, stop our lying. Now this goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 when God gives the commands and God says to Moses, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. One of the earliest commands for God's people. And interestingly enough, in the proverbial wisdom, the wise sage writes in Proverbs 6.16, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, there's seven that are detestable to him. Listen to what God hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension among the brethren. I find it interesting that of the seven things that God hates, that three of them, almost half of them, have to do with our keeping of the gate. Stirring up dissension, telling lies, misusing our, our speech, whether or not we tell the truth. Now, in case you think this is a one, one and done for Paul, in Colossians 3, 9, it says the same things. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. In fact, what Paul is trying to say in Ephesians and Colossians is this. If you've put aside the old self, then why are you still lying? How can you be indwelt by the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of truth, and still lie? You see, Paul doesn't see our poor speech patterns as a sign of the weakness of the human flesh. He sees it as being indwelt by darkness. Listen to what Jesus said. If you want to listen to Paul, maybe we'll listen to Jesus. John 8, Jesus says to those who are refusing his message, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. There it is. Because there is no truth in the devil. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. But Jesus says to those who've gathered around him, he doesn't sugarcoat it. The devil's a murderer. And the devil's a liar, and he's the father of the lies, and I speak the truth, and because I speak the truth and don't lie like your father the devil, you will not hear me. And yet we live in a day where lying is more prone than ever before, especially with social media, the things people type and say, intentionally being deceptive. There was a study at the University of Virginia that said, sorry moms, when college students speak to their mothers, they're lying half the time. They took 77 college students, recorded everything they said for a week. They asked them to go back and highlight that it was anonymous so they could 
That's kind of funny, isn't it? So they could be truthful. <laughs> and they highlighted all the times they were lying. And half the time, college students lie to their mother. Well, how about their dads? Shame on dads. They don't speak to their dads enough to have any separate pattern. So we don't, we don't know. They, they, they want to call their moms. The 77 students, over a seven-day period, lied a 1,000 times. That was average of two lies a day. The things they were tended to lie about. Mom, the textbook cost $135 when it was $75 so they could have a little party cash. Or I can't talk right now. I'm studying for a test. Or to get out of a babysitting. Now, I understand this one. Get out of a babysitting request. They claimed to have a prior commitment. They couldn't do it. Just can't do it. Why? David Lieberman has written a book entitled Never Be Lied to Again. And he says, we lie to each other in marriage relationships 10% of the time. If you're in a dating relationship, they lie to you 30% of the time. The good thing about marrying is you're close enough you can't lie as much. So it's down to 10% of the time. Lieberman's book, though I won't go into it, tries to give you cues by which you can tell if your spouse or your date or your business partner is lying. The psalmist of old in Psalm 51 said, God, surely you desire truth. In the innermost parts, you teach me wisdom in the innermost place. But we're drowning today in an absolute sea of falsity. A judge claims to be the brother of a civil rights murder victim, but he isn't. A news anchor boasts of a war record that only exists in his mind. And Ms. Virginia has to give a crown back because she's padding the facts. In the first case, it was a federal judge, James Ware of San Jose. He often but falsely claimed that he was the older brother of Virgil Ware, a 13-year-old shot to death off the handlebars of a bicycle by two white teenagers on the day in 1963 when four girls were killed in the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama. He used to say that it made him hungry for justice. But someone chased down his resume, and he has no relationship to Virgil Ware, and he had to withdraw his nomination for an appeals court seat. The news anchor, you know, is Brian Williams, who fabricated and exaggerated his service record in Iraq war, claiming that he was in a helicopter that was shot down, and he survived, and he just made it all up. Beauty queen was Andrea Balingi, who was stripped of her Miss Virginia title after falsely asserting that she was a law student at the University of Miami, and she was no such thing. Potential employers don't check resumes, and so people lie. Employers call it canned ham. They fill up the space. They put enough water in it until it fills up the space on the resume. But the best lie I have ever heard happened in 1997 when a fellow pulled up to Yankee Stadium right up into the VIP parking lot way up close. And the friend claimed to be a personal friend of George Steinbrenner. I'm his good friend. He tells me just to park here, said the guy in the car. 
fabricating his right to park in the VIP spot, unbeknownst to him, and the only time in history, George Steinbrenner was the parking lot attendant on that day on that occasion. They had been having traffic jams and problems with VIP spaces. Not, they'd numbered them, but people were taking them. And so when Steinbrenner began to speak and the guy who claimed to be his best friend realized he had made a terrible mistake, he said, I guess I'm in the wrong lot, aren't I? And he, he backed away. Paul says that lying is part of our old self, our old garment. The new garment of Christ being indwelled by the Spirit requires that we be truth speakers. Paul is saying, secondly, not only must we speak the truth, but we must employ speech which builds up and gives grace. I love the way he says it there in verse 29 of Ephesians 4. But only such a word is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Think about your speech patterns. Are you speaking words of grace to those around you? Speaking words of grace. When someone, someone were to describe your speech patterns and say, oh, it's just grace that flows from him or her. Our words are not to be destructive. One way we might be destructive with our words, there might not be grace word, is innuendo. Innuendo, that is when we say more about a situation than we really know. When we speak more than we know, we fill in the blanks. We see one set of facts and we do another. You know, in small towns, Everybody keeps it with everybody and everybody's business and everybody knows everything. Well, my, my friend Bobby Dagno used to pastor First Baptist Hemphill, and there was nothing to do in Hemphill but keep up with everybody else's business. That's just what they did. One day, Bobby got a call from a church member, and she said boldly to the pastor, I saw so-and-so at the liquor store today. Well, he said, that's right. His car broke down, and he called me, and I went to pick him up. Yes, you're right. Both he and I were in that liquor store parking lot today. Innuendo is destructive. It projects onto others more than we know. It claims the facts when reality is we're trying to smear. The second one is flattery. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. Now, listen carefully. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. If you wouldn't say it about her behind her back, do not say it to her face, even if it's positive. There's nothing wrong with saying something nice. In fact, that's exactly what Paul's trying to encourage. But if you're saying something nice to her face that you wouldn't say to another friend, then don't say it. It's manipulation. A third form of destructive speech is, is gossip. If flattery is saying to a person's face what you never say behind their back, gossip is saying behind their back what you would never say to his face. We can be subtle in our gossip. Did you hear about? 
Now, I know, I know you won't tell anyone as if my communication to you is an exception from the normal rules of conversation. We gossip, we want to appear as if we are in power. We gossip because we want to appear as if we are in the know. Donna Elder, a sociologist at Indiana University, did a three-year study on the dynamics of gossip. This is what Professor Elder discovered. That gossip doesn't really start when the first negative words are uttered. Gossip starts when there's a second from a third party. You see that? What she discovered was gossip doesn't initiate by a bad comment, true or untrue, behind someone's back. The gossip starts when somebody says, yeah, well, I also saw, or yes, I bet that's true, or that's just like him, or that's just like her. In fact, what Professor Elder found was if you don't affirm the negative statement, the person who made it begins to feel small and silly. In fact, the best thing she says to do is when the gossip begins with the negative statement, if you'll say something positive about the person about whom the gossip is being spread, then it ends the gossip train right there. So even, even if you don't initiate it, you might be the cause of it. If you don't stop it, at the hearing of your ears. He who gossips to you will gossip about you. He who gossips to you will gossip about you. Dr. John Skoronsky, psychology professor at Ohio State, made an incredible find. He assessed over a three-year study the effects of gossip. This is what Professor Skoronsky discovered. People associate the negative message with you not with the person about whom you're gossiping. So if you say someone's a cheat and a liar, he says they don't do it intentionally, it's just a memory mistake. You're the face in front of them when you're saying cheat and liar. They don't see the face of the other person, so down the road a few months, in their mind, cheat and liar comes up, they associate it with you, not the person with whom you're gossiping about. On the other hand, he says... If you say something really nice about someone like, can you believe she is so smart, she was admitted to Harvard, that down the road, they think of smart and Harvard with you. So the reality is, as God often does, he often builds in the punishment of our sins into the sins themselves. It sounds like he's, he's already done the job here. If you go around saying a lot of negative things about a lot of people, and over time, those negative words, that negativity is attached to your name and your image and not his or hers. And on the other hand, if you go around building people up, if you go around speaking words of grace, if you put on the new garment, if you're indwelt with the Spirit and you give words of grace about others, then people take those words to be associated with you. Check your gate. Number one, is it true? Number two, is it, is it necessary? There's some things that are true. I know a lot of truth is not necessary for me to speak. It'd be hurtful. And thirdly, is it helpful? 
Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it helpful? Solomon himself, the wisest one to ever live, Solomon himself says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. When you do a lot of talking, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips, says the wise one, is wise. He who checks the gate is wise. There's another form of destructive speech. That is words of criticism. It's easier to criticize someone than to take the resources available to him or her and do their tasks. We criticize persons in authority. We criticize our spouses, our family, our children. We're critical of those around us in the workplace. And a lot of low self-esteem starts with folks right there at a critical parent. My, my dad always wanted more and I couldn't live up. I, I never met my mother's expectations. Words in our families that sound like this. Can't you ever get anything right? You're so stupid. To children's ears from a parent. How about words of grace? How about putting on the new garment? How about words like this? I'm proud of you. Way to go. I knew you could do that. You're such a good helper. You're so special to me. Oh, I, I trust you. Hooray for you. You're a real trooper. Well done. You just made my day. Give me a big hug. Thank you for listening so carefully. You figured it out. I love you. You remembered. You're the best. You sure tried hard. I couldn't be prouder of you. I'm praying for you. And I'm behind you. Words of grace to children. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, in his book, Words That Heal, Words That Hurt, speaks to groups about words and language communication. He says, how many of you could go 24 hours without uttering an unkind word? How many of us could go 24 hours without uttering an unkind word to someone a word to someone or about someone. How many of you could make it 24 hours? If you can't go 24 hours without a drink, you're an alcoholic. If you can't go 24 hours without nicotine, then you're, you're addicted. And so if you can't go 24 hours without saying an unkind word, you have lost control of your gait. Yeah, Jordan's not the only one at six years of age who need a little help with her gait. I know I need some help. I got a sneaking suspicion. You do too. It's an irony. Paul says when we put on Christ, that newness, that garment, taking off the old self, of darkness, putting on the new garment of the Christ, the spirit of the Christ, that the way he can tell is our speech patterns. How'd you do last week 
Well, your, your pastor had to apologize to someone on the week he's writing this sermon. Hope you fared better. Was I alone last week in missing the measure? Have you been standing guard at your gate? You know, Scripture actually says we will, we will give account of every word that we utter. Keep the gate. Measure the words. Put on the new garment. And be God's voice of grace. Let us pray. God, in our human nature, in our flesh, we do not speak words of grace. We tear others down to try to look taller. We try to appear in the know. And the reality is we need to measure every word that we speak. God, I, I have a suspicion I'm not alone in needing to to come to you today and say, I want to be an Ephesians 4.29 gatekeeper to measure my words by the grace that comes from God. In his name we pray. Amen.